Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here with a very exciting announcement. How Woke Won, the brilliant new book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It's all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we, the public, can fight back. This is Spike's first book in a series of books that we're publishing in partnership with John Wilkes Publishing. Books all about the maddening times that we find ourselves in. And there couldn't be a better book to start with than How Woke Won. You can order your copy of How Woke One today by going to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Brexit is about sovereignty and it's about democracy. You know, sometimes when you hear the debate around this, it's as if... Northern Ireland was not quite part of the UK in the same way that that every other part of of the UK is. It it has the same rights and the same privileges as every other bit of the country. In the long run, I don't think you can easily manage arrangements that are ambiguous about sovereignty. You can manage practicalities in different ways, but either the province is part of the UK or it isn't, and it is. The the protocol's got to change or disappear. The only question is how. Hello and welcome to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Lord Frost. David Frost is a civil servant, politician and life peer. He was Britain's chief Brexit negotiator from January 2020 until his resignation in December 2021. He played a central role in revising the Brexit withdrawal agreement and in drawing up a free trade agreement with the EU during the Brexit transition period. He resigned from Boris Johnson's government in December last year over the government's plans for COVID passports, its net zero policies, and its failure to fully push the benefits of Brexit. So David, things are kicking off in relation to Northern Ireland and Brexit. And I think it's clear now to more and more people that the Northern Ireland protocol is a problem. And the fact that it aligns trade in Northern Ireland with the European Union rather than with the rest of the UK seems increasingly unworkable and, in my view, undesirable. And it's all been brought to a head by the recent Assembly elections in which Sinn Féin was the victor. And we now have the Democratic Unionist Party refusing to go back into Stormont until the protocol problem has been fixed. Boris Johnson has promised to do precisely that with new legislation that will unilaterally override parts of the protocol where necessary. And you have advised Boris in The Telegraph to be brave and push hard on this issue. So what do you think Boris needs to do in relation to the protocol and in relation to saving the Northern Ireland Assembly from these troubles? 
So I think he needs to do what they seem to be planning to do, which is to get on with legislation to overwrite the the protocol. Um, obviously, if the EU come back to the table and want to talk in a serious way, which they haven't been willing to do over the last year or so, that that would be worth doing. But if they don't, and it doesn't look like they will, um, I, I think there's no real choice. I mean, of course, I mean, lots of people do ask me, you know, why did you agree to the protocol mm-hmm. and um, how come it's here in this way? And, uh, you know, without going through all the history, the, the, the problem is obviously we inherited um, a withdrawal agreement that couldn't get through Parliament. And unfortunately, our predecessors had signed up to some principles which were impossible to get away from, notably the, the principle that the only way of keeping the border between North uh, and South Open was to have the same laws on both sides of the border. Now, I don't think that's correct. I don't think it's the only way of doing it. But but obviously, if that's your starting point, you're going to end up with something a bit like what we did. And um, it was a very delicate construct. There was a lot of kind of balancing language, a lot of flexibility in it. It hasn't been applied like that. And I think the only way forward now is that the protocol's got to change or disappear. The only question is how. Um, so uh, I'll come back to that question of, of of whether we reform it or disappear it, which is is obviously my preference. Um, but firstly, I want to ask you about something you've touched on there, which is the European Union's response. Um, because I do think, I actually welcome it when the European Union behaves in a rather erratic, childish, authoritarian way, because I think it confirms to lots of British voters why they were right to vote leave in 2016. And the EU response in this situation is as moderate as as ever. And there is talk of the EU thinking about launching a trade war, possibly targeting parts of the UK that have Brexiteer MPs almost as a kind of punishment regime over the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol and over the issue of Boris Johnson's discussion of uh, enforcing legislation that would uh, allow ministers to override parts of the protocol. This is pretty shocking behaviour, right, from the European Union. I mean, you were obviously the chief Brexit negotiator. You've dealt with the EU a lot. Is this how they behave? Is is and And why is this considered to be reasonable by quite a few people. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of a, uh, it's part of the pattern that we mm. saw in 2019 and 2020, when the, the then protocol was weaponized against us, we got all these threats, we wouldn't be able to move goods into Northern Ireland. That's what generated the UK internal market bill, amongst other things. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's more of the same. I think to be fair, the EU is beginning to move on from Brexit. And as some of the players from the time move on and are replaced, there's there's less yeah. sort of angst about all of it. But, uh, you know, I think the, the autopilot version is what we've seen in the last week or so. And that's what they do until they've had a chance to think hard about everything. And, you know, hopefully they will think hard because we're in a position where obviously there's something much bigger going on, i.e. the war in Ukraine, mm-hmm. Western unity is is really important. And, it, you know, it's all the more disappointing, surprising that they won't deal with this problem between friendly countries. We are we are supposed to be friendly countries, and yet it seems impossible to come to a, a reasonable kind of way through this. And that's why I think the government's been forced into this route, because there's no other option left. So you've already touched upon the problem of what you inherited in terms of the 
agreements and the deals and, and the proposals that had been made prior to you becoming chief Brexit negotiator. So this is not to throw shade on anything that you yourself negotiated or, or, or the protocol idea that you may have helped to implement. But I did want to ask you, doesn't the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol come down to the question of sovereignty? I mean, we can talk about the practical problems that the island of Ireland might have if one part of it is in the UK and another part of it is in the European Union, and we can all feel sympathetic to those uh, uh, strategic problems and trade problems that that might cause, although I think there are fairly clear solutions to those problems. Um, but fundamentally, isn't this a question of sovereignty? So the British people vote in 2016 for sovereignty to remove this country from the European Union. And we ended up in a situation where England, Scotland and Wales are out, but Northern Ireland is kind of kept partially in by being kept beholden to certain trade rules and laws and regulations and a Byzantine system of um, trade regulation in some situations. Doesn't that go, doesn't the Northern Ireland Protocol and the treatment of Northern Ireland in that particular way undercut what people voted for in June 2016, which was for the entire kingdom to remove itself from the European Union? Yeah, I think it does. And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to it, but Brexit is about sovereignty and it's about democracy. And, um, you know, sometimes when you hear the debate around this. It's as if Northern Ireland was not quite part of the UK in the same way that, that every other part of, of the UK is. Um, I, I, I tweeted a few weeks back uh, a, a comment about um, there being an international border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland on the island of Ireland. And I got this sort of flood of comments back saying, no, there isn't. Well, you know, unfortunately, there is. That is the reality. Um, Northern Ireland is part of this country, and until it votes differently, if it ever does, I think it's very unlikely, but possibly it exists, it, it has the same rights and the same privileges as every other bit of the country. And, you know, it is frustrating that we couldn't deliver that in in 2019. We had to prioritise getting the whole country out of the backstop. If we hadn't done that, I think we'd still have been negotiating to leave yeah. the customs union now. Um, but it was imperfect. And, you know, in the long run, I don't think you can easily manage arrangements that are ambiguous about sovereignty. You can manage practicalities in different ways, but either the province is part of the UK or it isn't, and yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you in relation to that about the role of the Irish government in all of this. Now, you're a diplomat. Diplomacy is your skill set. So I'm not expecting you to launch a tirade against the government in Dublin. Um, but I am someone who, I say this as someone who is an Irish citizen, and I have found the behaviour of the Irish government deeply problematic over the past few years. Because it does, and you talked earlier about friendly nations surely being able to come up with solutions to problems that they face. It strikes me that over the past couple of decades, uh, Britain and Ireland had become friendly nations. Anglo-Irish relations had improved enormously. And then you had this situation where Brussels seemed almost to be cajoling Dublin into playing a particular role in relation to Brexit, uh, almost as a thorn in, a side of, in the side of Brexit Britain. Is that your reading too? Uh, and if it is or, or if it isn't, what do you think will be the long-term consequences for Anglo-Irish relations 
of the treatment of Northern Ireland as this problematic, explosive issue in the Brexit question? Yeah, I, I mean, I, you're right. I, I was a diplomat. A lot of people <laughs> say I'm not a very diplomatic diplomat, but but I just believe in saying things like it is and uh, enabling people to react to that. I, I think it is it's probably a bit more complicated than you suggest. I think there are different views within the Irish establishment mm-hmm. and the different political parties. I, I think some... Um, uh, notably when Enter Kenny was Taoiseach, you know, we're looking for a, a pragmatic way through this, obviously conditioned by a certain set of views, but, but a pragmatic way. And under Leo Varadkar, things were different. I think the current Taoiseach is a serious guy and, mm-hmm. and gets some of the problems. I'm not sure everybody kind of around him in the Irish government necessarily does. I think they were encouraged by the EU to... Uh, to hang tough, um, and uh, you know they they threw in their lot with the European Union in those negotiations, and you know in many ways they won quite a a, a strong victory. We were able to claw back a bit of territory at the end, but but in a way they won too much. They they came up in the end. We've got an arrangement that can't be sustained because it's it's just too biased in one direction, and that that is the problem with with doing that. So I think. You know, Anglo-Irish relations, I, I mean, they're not great at the moment. I, I, I think it was going to take a bit of time to recover from this, to be honest. But, um, uh, you know, when you look at the way, um, you know, Irish people and British people are intermingled day to day and so much of the cultural life of these islands is is kind of one, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't get back to normal eventually. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, so in relation to Northern Ireland specifically and the results of the recent elections, so Sinn Féin is now the largest party, which is, as everyone is pointing out, some with glee and some with terror. That is a pretty historical moment. It's a, it's a very unique, a very new situation. Um, I wrote a piece for Spike pointing out that it's not as if thousands and thousands and thousands more people voted for Sinn Féin. Their vote has remained very, very static, but it's rather that the DUP lost votes to the Alliance Party and to to traditional unionist voice. And there's been a kind of disarray and decay of the unionist bloc for for many reasons. Um, So what's your read on Northern Ireland now? A situation that some people are putting down to Brexit. So, some of the some, one of the arguments people are making is that you have these Brexiteers who who are very into the idea of the union and the United Kingdom, but they have unleashed a process unwittingly which could give rise to a united Ireland because Sinn Fein is now the, in the ascendant, and people are saying that the border is a problem. What's your reading on how that will pan out in Northern Ireland itself in terms of? Uh, the possibility of an Irish border poll, the possibility that things could change constitutionally in the medium or the long term? Mm. Well, I mean, obviously Brexit has had an impact on the dynamics in Northern Ireland. It would be silly to to say otherwise. Mm. I I, I don't think it's quite as dramatic as some people say, and in some ways it's just accelerated things that were there already. Um, Unionism with a capital U is still the largest bloc in the Assembly. And as you say, it's not the Sinn Féin have got the same number of seats they had last time. It changes elsewhere. We're seeing a shift you know, towards the the kind of um, non-aligned centre ground, if you like, in the Alliance Party as well. That's also part of the the picture. So we are seeing changes in in Northern Ireland. Um, I think... 
um, fundamentally, nevertheless, there's a two-thirds majority of voters in Northern Ireland to be part of the United Kingdom, some unionists with a capital U, if you like, who are you know, very emotionally attached mm-hmm. to being part of Britain. Others may be more pragmatically attached to see the advantages of being part of a, a big country with everything that, that comes with that and all the opportunities. And that's been quite stable over quite a long time. And I, I don't think it's it's going to change anytime soon. So I, I don't agree with the you know, the kind of, the view that Northern Ireland is on the wrong side of history somehow and is destined to disappear. It's already existed for, uh, you know, longer than most of the independent states in the world. And I I think it is a a viable um, and very important part of the United Kingdom, and I hope it stays so. So I want to move on to the question of, I suppose this is a sweeping political and philosophical question, of what Brexit is, which you've already touched upon. You've, you've said that Brexit is fundamentally about sovereignty and it's about democracy. Now, of course, there are significant sections of the elites in this country, the, the Remainer-leaning elites in particular, who would say that actually it's about uh, bitterness on the part of sections of the British electorate, xenophobia, racism, various arguments were made. And one of the things that has struck me in terms of what Brexit is, six years later, we're still having this discussion. And and it was very striking that post-referendum, we saw the introduction of these new terms, soft Brexit, hard Brexit, Brexit for England, Wales and Scotland, but not really for Northern Ireland. And then The Economist did a brilliant piece on you towards the end of last year, in which they said there's only one Brexit now, and it's Lord Frost's Brexit, and it's a diamond hard Brexit. I think the implication was that being a hard Brexiteer was a bad thing, whereas I think being a hard Brexiteer basically just means being a Brexiteer. All of those different discussions of what Brexit means suggest that there is an element of confusion among sections of the establishment in particular about what this vote was for. So in the broadest scope, how do you see the vote for Brexit and what people actually wanted when they made that vote? Yeah, I I think... Brexit is about independence, it's about freedom for the country, it's about sovereignty, it's about democracy. And I I really um, react quite strongly to those who say the the Brexit vote was was driven by xenophobia or people who didn't really understand what was going on and all this kind of thing. I mean, that that is a a lack of belief in democracy. And I, I don't believe people are unable to make these sort of decisions. I think most people thought quite hard about it, to be honest, before this referendum. And it came out a particular way. And there we are. Once it happened, I think that if you are left with some of our rules subject to decisions taken elsewhere, then we're not sovereign. That's not Brexit. And you know, this idea that I David Frost Brexit drove through this hard Brexit <laughs> against everybody else's yeah. as will is just I'm, I'm I'm just the vehicle for delivering what the British people voted for and you know the previous Theresa May government seemed unable to do that and and we did it is uh, you know I, I think the important thing is that Brexit is it's not a thing in itself. It's a very important thing, but it's a door that we've got to go through. It's a gateway. It enables all kinds of other things, changes in the country, taking our own decisions. That's what it's about. It's about freedom for the country. Yeah. You mentioned there the misinterpretation of Brexit as this something that people didn't know what they were voting for, or they did know what they were voting for, and it was 
really strong immigration controls because they hate foreigners, all those kinds of arguments we've seen again and again over the past six years. And, and I wanted to ask you what you think the consequence of that meltdown, I mean, there really was a meltdown amongst sections of the political class in the media elites in particular. I saw people weeping on the streets, you know, the blue paint running down their faces because they were so horrified by what the uh, people of Britain had voted for. And there were a huge number of pretty poisonous accusations made against voters, particularly working class voters in red wall parts of the country who were seen as thick or low information, which is the politically correct term for thick, um, racist, motivated by problematic prejudices. What do you think will be the consequences of that hysteria, I guess we could describe it, in terms of how it will impact upon the relationship between the people of this country and the people who govern this country and possibly the distrust between those two sections of society? Yeah, I mean, the establishment in this country had a nervous breakdown in 2018, 2019. Um, uh, you know, it seemed unable to govern the country effectively, at least on this issue. Um, and that's going to take some time to get over. The establishment obviously is still divided on these, these mm. questions, even if some have kind of reconciled themselves to, to things. I, I think, I think we will get over it. I think it'll, it'll take time. You know, this disdain for what, you know, supposedly red wall, low information voters vote for, I find quite strange. I think, you know, only in Europe is voting for democracy, sovereignty, freedom, the belief that the nation state that you're part of can do things. Only that, only in Europe or in the EU is that regarded as a weird opinion. Yeah. Everywhere else <laughs> in the world, it's regarded as completely normal. Mm. And I, I just think there's a kind of false consciousness, unwillingness to look at the reality of what's going on here amongst some of the, the establishment. However, you know, I think the Brexit vote was to some extent a symptom of the fact there already was a gap between yeah. the establishment and, and everybody else. And I think Brexit, you know, having real debate about things here, having a parliament that could decide things, elections that decide things, proper debate about things will close that gap eventually. But it probably is going to take some time, I guess. So in relation to those gaps, I completely agree that the, the gap between, I guess, the rulers and the ruled, to use old-fashioned language, existed prior to Brexit, and Brexit kind of brought it to the surface in many ways and, and made it clearer and, and, and people could see what was going on. I wanted to ask you whether you think the Conservative Party really understands Brexit. Now, of course, the Conservative Party is... Uh, has many different factions and people and ideas. It's not a, a monolithic block, but it, it, it is curious, isn't it, that you have a Conservative Party who, as its name suggests, is about conserving things, which has become the representative of, I would argue, a pretty radical vote for change, for tearing Britain away from an institution that it has been uh, tied with for four decades, five decades, um, and arguing for something new, something different, for more democracy, for populism, for uh, treating working class voters more seriously. And they felt obviously that they hadn't been treated seriously for quite some time. So isn't the Conservative Party in a slightly difficult situation where it is being called upon to represent a, a, a radical and working class sentiment? And do you think that's 
could potentially cause some friction between the party and the, the newer voters that it's taken on board over the past few years? I, I mean, it could, but I, I don't think it will, and I hope it won't. It, I mean, I think the party, certainly in the country, maybe a bit less so in Parliament, I think it, it gets it now. Mm. Obviously, it was divided in 2016, and obviously I have... You know, I've, I've had conversations with one or two prominent Conservative MPs who've told me privately they would still go back in tomorrow if they, they right. could. But I yeah. don't think that's a mainstream view, particularly now. I think, you know, the problem is that, I mean, the Conservative Party traditions actually are more in this area than people think. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher won good chunks of the, the red wall mm-hmm. by appealing to aspirational working class voters. And, if, you know, if you go back to Disraeli, even, you know, enfranchisement of the working classes, um, the Conservative Party has always been a coalition that's able to uh, bring in working people as well as the the establishment when it's wanted to. It's also always been a coalition between free market liberals who want lots and lots of change and churn and conservatives who want to keep institutions. And I I think that balance and that dialogue is important to the strength of the party. And there's no reason why it can't continue. The, The thing is to calm down from the frenzy of the last few years, which I think by and large we are doing, and kind of get on with the job and do that. Lots of people are talking about the great realignment in British politics. Whether it's a great realignment or not, there has unquestionably been shifts amongst the voting public and a turnaround in the fortunes of the Labour Party, the fortunes of the Conservative Party, and the recent local elections confirmed some of that. So the Conservative Party held on pretty well to its seats and its influence in red wall parts of the country, but it lost uh, lots of the south uh, and I guess the leafier suburbs and the plusher parts of, of of the country in terms of wealth and influence in the south, either to the Liberal Democrats outside of London and then to the Labour Party in parts of London. So there does seem to be a shift where, just looking at this from the perspective of Tory and Labour, the Tory party, in some people's view, has become an increasingly working class party. Whereas Labour, which has, I think, exhibited contempt towards the working classes in recent years, or certainly bamboozlement as to who these people are and what they want and how they think, uh, seems to be increasingly becoming the party of the middle classes and even the upper middle classes. How, how do you understand that alignment? Do you agree that one has taken place? Do you think it's a temporary realignment or do you think it could have a long-term impact on the political life of this country? I, think, I mean, I think it, in, in many ways it's getting back to normal. Uh, in some ways, for the for the Conservative Party, at least, I think the way I think about it is that the the Conservative Party is is the party of people who, um, or should be, the party of people who believe in economic growth, who want to get on, who want to you know be independent people, provide for their families, make money, become. Uh, established. That doesn't mean they're all, you know, sort of desperate to make money compared to everything else, but yeah. it's about aspiration. It's about kind of developing as, as people. Yeah. And I think Labour's problem is that they, you know, they're an uneasy coalition of, of kind of Hampstead intellectuals and uh, public sector workers and a, a sort of client vote. Uh, that live off the state in various ways. That isn't an easy way of developing an attractive political philosophy, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think in the end, Labour are going to have to accept that, uh, you know, they need uh, an appeal that appeals to people who 
kind of, you know, want happy and successful and satisfactory lives in all kinds of ways and aren't too bothered about some of the ideologies that worry the, the leadership of the yeah. party. I, I, I think it may take them a bit of time to get there, but I, I can't see there's any viable route than the, the parties than to sort of go back to Hull and away from Hampstead, if yeah. you like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to ask you about your former boss. Uh, Boris Johnson. And uh, just on the question of the Northern Ireland Protocol, not specifically on that, but one of the things you said to him is that he needs to brave it out. He needs to have the courage of his convictions and see this through and either uh, follow through on the plans that are being made and, and make sure that he stands firm against anyone in the European Union who might have different ideas for how things should be done. And I want to ask you is if you think he's actually able to do that. Um, because one of the impressions that people have of Boris Johnson is that he is influenced by the last person who was in his office. You yourself, when you resigned in December from uh, his cabinet, you argued that he needed to clear the woke crowd out of Downing Street, the neo-socialists, the green fanatics and the pro-woke crowd. I'm not going to ask you to name names, but if you want to, feel free. (laughs) And I, I, I guess I wanted to ask you how problematic has Downing Street become? Because if it's true that there are neo-socialists and green fanatics and pro-woke people in Downing Street, that does strike me as a bit of a problem, not least because those ideologies would run so much counter to what vast numbers of ordinary people think and how how they want society to be organised. So how problematic has Downing Street become and how much of a problem is that for Boris Johnson in terms of doing something like seeing off the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I am an admirer of, of the Prime Minister of, of Boris. He, um, he has his weaknesses, who doesn't? But I think generally he actually has good judgment about the big things that matter. Um, and the, the problem is he isn't always willing to trust that judgment. He's, he's, he is sometimes quite influenced by, by people around him or people who he, he thinks know better, even if they don't. And, and I think that's why you've got some of this being carried along, along by the, the zeitgeist. And there are a lot mm-hmm. of people in, in Downing Street or were maybe a bit less so now who, you know, who were very in tune with the, the modern liberal zeitgeist and not so in tune with the, the party. And, um, you know, I just think he needs to trust his judgment, uh, uh, about things. Um, he, he is really good at connecting with people. He does understand what people want. And, um, I think he can do that. And it's a question of getting the right people around him. You know, everyone has weaknesses. No prime minister is ever going to be perfect in, in everything. I think his best friends wouldn't say he's brilliant at operating a bureaucratic apparatus. So he needs people around him who can do that and deliver what he wants to do. Mm. And, I think the changes we saw this year in Downing Street are beginning to improve things. I think it is a bit better, uh, but I think there's still some way to go before we can be really confident, you know, the instincts are in line with the passes. And obviously in some areas like tax and energy, I think they're not at the moment. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Spiked is launching an internship program. We're offering paid placements to aspiring writers, podcasters, and video makers who want to cut their teeth at the best political magazine in the world. You'll work with us full-time for six months in London starting this July, and there's the possibility of more work at the end of it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'll help us to produce our articles, features, and essays, or an audio-visual internship where you'll help us to produce our videos and podcasts like this one. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. I want to come back to the question of energy in a moment, but on the question of wokeness, which I appreciate is a pretty amorphous term. It's not a particularly helpful term, but I think most people know what we are referring to. If we use a term like that, we're referring to a section of the influential classes who have a particular view of gender, race, British history, and education. And and those people have a great deal of influence in public life and in the education system. And I wanted to ask you if you thought Boris Johnson's government was doing enough in this so-called culture war to see down the pro-woke crowd and to stand up for British values and British history. Because I, if, if I had to guess that in December 2019, the two things this new government would do that was enthusiastically voted into, very enthusiastically voted into power. I thought it would get Brexit done. That was its on the, on the label, but it would also stand up to some of this insanity that has infected areas of public life in relation to gender fluidity or the hyper racial consciousness, even where that's not necessary at all. But it seems to me they've backed out from some of that discussion. What's your reading on, on whether Boris's government is doing what needs to be done in relation to the culture war? Well, I, I, I think the, the two things that need doing by this government, one, to get the economics in the right place mm-hmm. and more free marketism, more kind of progressism, if you like, and second, to rebuild this nation state, you know, to reestablish Britain as a kind of viable project that people buy into. And that's why I think the culture war is, is important. I mean, I don't particularly like the term culture war or, or wokeness, yeah. but I don't think you have to fight it in aggressive fashion, but you, you, you have to stand up for truth and objective reality in things. And that's where some of the craziness of the last couple of years seems to have you know, become a bit unhinged. I, I thought when, Boris said what he did about trans and biology. I thought that was really good. And you mm. could almost like feel the air go out of the balloon when he said it. Like, thank goodness somebody's just said what is obvious and we've got a reference point to to go to now. So it doesn't say much. I, I mean, I'm not the biggest admirer of, of President Macron, it has to be said, but I think one thing he has got right is, uh, you know, he said that we are we are – not putting down statues in France. We're proud of our history. It's got good and bad bits, but it is what it is. And it's what we stand for. And I, I just think a bit more of that here would would go quite a long way and leave make people who don't feel that supported a bit more supported by the government and encouraged to speak out. Because of course, problem is a bit lack of free debate and discussion about these things. 
So I want to ask you specifically about the trans issue because it has become an enormous issue. I mean, that's just undeniable. And I agree with you that uh, the comments Boris made were uh, very positive and and incredibly useful where he said very plainly with no um, invective or or desire for a fight, he just said, listen, if you were born male, you probably shouldn't be taking part in women's sports and you probably shouldn't be going into women's spaces. And I think most people out there would absolutely agree with that. More recently, we've had Sajid Javid saying that biological sex matters and it needs to be, we need to take consideration off the sex differences and what women might need in contrast with men and so on. And that's all very positive, I think. And and I sometimes worry that the Conservative Party underestimates how important those messages are in terms of communicating to voters that the establishment hasn't completely lost its marbles. I think they, those kinds of rational statements play an incredibly important political role. But we do live in a country in which the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, is reluctant to answer the question, what is a woman? Is gets uh, flustered when someone says to him, can a woman have a penis? Which seems to me the easiest question one can answer. The answer is no, full stop. No further explanation required. <laughs> so this, unfortunately, because no one particularly wants to talk about these things, I, I don't think, but unfortunately it has become a very pressing issue in terms of what it tells us about, I guess, a culture of irrationality, of politicians going along with the zeitgeist without thinking carefully about what they're saying and what they're doing. So I guess I want to ask you, why do you think that sections of the political establishment who are very well educated and who understand biology, I presume, will are so reluctant to say what a woman is and what a man is and how we got to that situation? Yeah, I mean, it is obviously um, insane when there's so many problems in the country mm. to be spending time debating these these kind of angels on a pin, uh, on the head of a pin questions. I think to some extent, this kind of weird view, as I see it, this weird view that there's something called gender, which is different sex, and this kind of magical construct mm. that, that, you know, you can't actually point to it in reality, but but it's it's there. I think that those sort of views form part of the same function that kind of communist ideology did in the old Eastern Bloc. It's kind of ideological structures disconnected from objective reality, but which everybody's expected to kind of buy into. And I I forget which Eastern European distant it was. It might have been Milan Kundera, though I might might be wrong about that. But anyway, he said, um, whoever it was said, uh, one of the worst things about communism was not just the ideology was bad. It was the fact that you were expected to kind of pronounce it all day. And um, in the end, it weakened your sense of yourself as a person because you're having to say things you didn't believe and yet you didn't have the courage to dissent. And it was it was kind of corrosive as a, a human being. And, uh, you know, the way we're all expected to repeat these slogans of, you know, trans women are women or whatever the mm. latest thing is, it seems to me quite redolent of some of the things you'd see on red banners in in Eastern Europe. In 1984, people often talk about new speak, but there's also duck speak, which is this description of people who mouth things and the words don't go through the brain. They're just (laughs) mouths. And it's, it's a sign of ideological conformity, not of actual thoughts about anything. And that seems like that's quite a relevant concept to describe some of these things to me. Yeah. Very well put. And just to push that slightly further, uh, 
one thing that I wanted to ask you was about the fact that this is a government issue, because you make the point that there are lots of things going on in this country, and particularly in relation to the cost of living crisis, which I want to ask you about in a moment. There's also the Ukraine crisis, which I think is one of the most serious historical crises that uh, of modern times. So there's a lot going on. But regardless, the trans issue is important because I think it cuts to the heart of how we understand ourselves and how we understand our family relations and our community. So if you have in the education system, for example, children being taught that gender is fluid, that you can click your fingers and change from one sex to another, that seems to me to pose all sorts of problems for how children understand themselves and their relationship with men and women, mothers and fathers, school teachers, and so on. You also have the situation where J.K. Rowling, who is arguably the most important cultural product of this country of the past 20 or 30 years, is being harassed and threatened every day simply for quite bravely standing up for the idea that biological sex is real and that women sometimes need their own rights and their own spaces distinct from men. And a few days before this conversation, we had a situation in Manchester where um, feminists and women's rights activists tried to gather at the statue of Emmeline Pankhurst, and they were prevented from doing so by largely men in balaclavas who were calling those women bigots and transphobes and so on. So uh, given all those things, uh, I actually think it's quite important for the government to say, leave JK Rowling alone. She's an important ambassador for this country. She doesn't deserve these threats and this abuse. Stop confusing school children with the ideology of gender fluidity. Teach them about biology. Teach them about the importance of relations between the sexes. And let women protest and speak as freely as they want to and to associate freely, uh, distinct from men, if that's what they desire to do. So shouldn't someone in government, not necessarily Boris Johnson, but I think that would be perfect. Shouldn't someone in government stand up and say, stop this is enough. We need to get back to reason and we need to get back to freedom on these questions. I, uh, yes, is the, the short answer. I mean, I think to be fair, those things have all been said right. by by either the PM or, or relevant government ministers at various times. The trouble is you've got to keep saying it because uh, a lot of people who don't agree and lots of people who are in charge of the various uh, kind of institutions of this country and are still pushing this stuff regardless of what ministers say. And so you've got to you've got to keep saying it and you've got to take control of the apparatus to make sure that these ideologies aren't pushed mm-hmm. uh, to the exclusion of everything else. I mean, it's, obviously, it's, it's fine to have free debate about things, mm-hmm. but not to present these things as the only depiction of reality from which dissent is, is impossible. And, you know, I suspect critical race theory, you know, you can still find it being taught in schools, even though it's not supposed to, and maybe mm-hmm. they don't realise they're kind of teaching it. But we, we need to get a grip. And I think a key tool in this is is free speech. If you're allowed to talk freely, if you're allowed to say the emperor's got no clothes, then you, you're already half inoculated against this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so on that question of freedom, a couple of other issues I want to talk to you about. The first is COVID and lockdowns and the incredibly peculiar moment we've all lived through over the past two years. Uh, You resigned from government over COVID regulations, the Plan B regulations, which at that time included 
um, the idea of COVID passes and um, lots of people were incredibly worried about proposals like that. The idea that you would need a pass to demonstrate your healthiness before you could engage in everyday life and everyday society. And I want to ask you, j- just reflecting on the past two years, how you think this could have happened? Because there was such an extraordinary suspension of civil liberty, the like of which none of us has ever experienced before, and hopefully will never experience again, to the extent of being told when you could leave your own home, what park benches you could sit on, the right to protest was obviously suspended, freedom of association, visiting very ill relatives was a no-go area. I mean, the minutiae of our lives was policed by law and dictat in a way that none of us has experienced uh, in modern times. Um, How do you think that happened? Was there a a pre-existing disregard for the ideal of freedom, which meant that something like that could be pushed through in a relatively uncontroversial way? Was it the culture of fear that was whipped up around COVID that enabled this process to take place? How do you think the, the, the lockdown idea took hold in the way that it did? There's a lot of things behind it, I think. I I think, first of all, there are a lot of pre-existing trends in society because society's moved in a collectivist uh, direction since the financial crash, which encouraged people to feel the government can kind of bail you out and protect you from things. We've got the whole climate ideology, which you know, is already encouraging people to kind of stay at home, live local, don't travel, don't do this, don't do that. And I think actually lockdowns would have been quite difficult without that pre-existing authority, uh, ideology that kind of attuned people to, to these ideas before they, they happened. So in a way, lockdown almost seemed kind of consistent with that direction of travel, I think. So that's one aspect of it. The other is, um, you know, the clampdown on free speech, the the inability to debate whether this was the right thing, the um, stigmatisation of people like those who supported the Great Barrington Declaration for thinking different things, the closing off of of theories, um, most obviously the lab leak uh, view. But, uh, you know, it took a bit of time to to acknowledge, for example, that vaccination didn't prevent transmission. It only uh, made the symptoms of COVID less severe. You know, at first that wasn't acknowledged and suddenly we, we kind of moved to it. So I, I think we'd have come out of it sooner if we'd had more debate about it, more objective evidence about it. And I think that's true within government as well as outside. I, I actually think Boris Johnson had come to doubt the advice he was getting by the end, but but didn't know quite where to turn yeah. to get something different. And I had said to myself, as you say, you know, I'm not going to support vaccine passports. This is a fundamental issue of principle. I'm not going to support another lockdown. And when it seems that that's what was happening, that's why I, I left. And I'm very glad if, if it contributed to us mm-hmm. doing something different and moving out of it, great. You know, we, as so often, the British political culture in the end allows enough debate and enough exploration of things and enough challenge to get us to the right decision. And we did. I think that point about the the clampdown on freedom of speech, which which was not one of the formal clampdowns. There was not mm. a law saying you are not allowed to say COVID is nonsense or 
which by the way is not a view I hold, COVID was a very serious virus, or that lockdown is the wrong approach. There was no legal restriction on those those forms of expression, although there were social media restrictions, in fact, from Silicon Valley oligarchs who none of us voted for, but they were controlling some of this discussion. But there was an informal culture in which it was made pretty clear through um, Twitter storms or demonization, uh, and particularly targeted at the um, the people behind the Great Barrington Declaration. Through those processes, it was made clear to people at large that listen, you don't say these things, you don't think these things. Uh, certainly, if you if you want to be treated seriously, you just don't do it. Do you think that was a problem in government itself? So you talked about how Boris was becoming skeptical of some of these measures, but didn't quite know where to turn. Because when there is not a culture of freedom, it's often not clear where to turn. Who do you align with? What form of thinking are you allowed to express? What ideas are you allowed to express? Do you think there was an element where in government itself, certainly in the early stages, or or for the first year, I suppose, they listened rather too much to the scientific advisors who have their own agendas and their own ideas and not enough to those who were saying there might be a different way of approaching this problem. Yeah, I think that was a problem. Um, you know, I don't think it was, there was ever any serious attempt made in the first year to, uh, you know, to kind of really explore the counter view. Mm. Um, it was easier to go along with the, the consensus and, uh, you know, to be fair, these are extremely complicated questions yeah. and, uh, you know, it needs a range of expertise to really kind of dig into them. You know, you do need modelers, you need medical experts, you need economists, you need all these sorts of people to come to a balanced view. And um, that takes time to do. And often decisions taken under great pressure. So you need to have a system that is going to produce this rather than having to grasp for it every time you you reach a problem. And there wasn't a system. And um, we paid too much attention to the medical establishment and the the modelers. And obviously, I don't dismiss their expertise, Mm -hmm. but it's only part of the the picture. And uh, I I think just by osmosis, people began to realise during 2021 that there was another view here and another possible course to take. And that's what we did. Have you signed up to Spiked Daily Newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Okay, one more uh, question on the issue of consensus and the stifling nature of consensus sometimes in modern society, which is on the issue of climate change, net zero policies, uh, which I think are incredibly problematic in terms of the impact they will have on, I guess, industrial progress in this country, nuclear progress, the idea that economic growth is a good thing rather than a problematic thing. And also, I think net zero policies will have a detrimental impact on people's pockets and their ability to have money and to live comfortably. But this is another issue, isn't it, in which one of the problems is that what you're allowed to say is quite limited because if you raise questions about these issues, you will be called a climate change denier, even if you are not a climate change denier. 
you will be pushed to the fringes of society, even though what you're trying to, what one is trying to raise is the question of how we ensure that people have enough to live on and that society is comfortable and wealthy and progressive and industrious. So how do you view the net zero proposal right now? And what questions do you think people ought to be asking about it? So I, I'm not a, a scientist, obviously, or a climate scientist, and but I have read quite a lot uh, around this. And, you know, I guess my view is that obviously CO2 in the atmosphere has an impact on the global temperature. The question is how much, how quickly, whether the feedback loops are quite what people say they are. And basically, I'm not 100% convinced we're in a sort of climate crisis catastrophe in in the way that people say, I think probably decarbonisation over time is is worth doing for all kinds of reasons. But I'm not convinced that it's essential at the expense of all other goals to reach net zero in 2050. And of course, you know, it's only Europe and the US that have set that goal. Other countries around the world haven't have set more relaxed goals than that. I worry that the current policy can't be delivered with the available technology. I don't think the debate is is particularly honest about that. And the government's energy security strategy was not a particularly brilliant piece of work, I didn't think, on that. And therefore, I think if it can't be done with the technology, the only route, if you're insistent on the goal, is rationing and demand control. And I think we are risk heading down that road. In fact, we already see some signs of it. I don't think people will want to do that. So we're heading for a crunch and a crisis. And meanwhile, the collateral damage of it in terms of um, tech, you know, the costs of technologies that don't work particularly well being imposed on people is, is, is great. I think the other aspect of this is the, you know, the kind of persistent miserableism that's around. You know, net zero and the climate, all the issues around climate, you know, they play to, they create, they're also a product of this belief that is so widespread that economic growth is a bad thing, progress is a bad thing, we should all live within our resources, we shouldn't be a burden on the planet, we shouldn't try and master our environment and make ourselves wealthier and better off and all the other and healthier and all the other things you did that and that is now under serious challenge and i think net zero is part of it and we will not be successful as societies unless we fight back against that we'll we'll simply be overtaken by societies that 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 prioritize other things and i don't think we can afford to be in that position yeah, and I think I really agree that a distinction has to be made between the issue of climate change, which most people take seriously and want to talk about and talk about practical solutions to that, yeah. and the hysteria of climate change politics, which if you look at some a group like Extinction Rebellion, for example, they put forward ideas that billions of people will die and it's the end of days and there's an apocalypse coming and it is incredibly uh, almost pseudo-religious notion that mankind is doomed by his own sinful behavior. And I think the first task I would say in terms of talking about environmental questions is making a distinction between the reality of what might be happening and the lunacy of some of the claims that are being made. But in relation to the point you've made there, which I think is a very pertinent one about how this politics, this ideology element of uh, modern environmentalism is holding back the idea of progress and growth and um, providing people with plenty. That's very true. And I wanted to ask you about what the government has been doing on this, because I do think 
I personally think it's a shame that Boris Johnson has gone from being a very colourful, funny climate change sceptic who used to write articles um, ridiculing the idea that London was under threat from biblical style floods to now becoming, uh, I don't know, maybe a carry influenced <laughs> promoter of, of green ideology. And one thing that struck me was when he was speaking at the Glasgow United Nations climate change conference, um, where he talked about the problem of the industrial revolution. And he echoed, in fact, comments that were made by Greta Thunberg, which is that Britain is really the the starting point of the climate change crisis and the end of days because we are responsible for the Industrial Revolution. And that, that brings me back to a point you made earlier about the importance of uh, appreciating the wonderful nature of this country and its history, because surely the Industrial Revolution is something we should celebrate. In, in my mind, it's arguably the most important moment in human history, because it does drag us into the modern era, not only in terms of how we produce and transport things, but also in terms of um, the creation of cities, the creation of education, the end of children working eventually, that sense of solidarity, that sense of community, all of this is brought forward by the violence and the craziness of the Industrial Revolution and that incredibly important historical moment. So shouldn't we stand up? for that part of our history too, the fact that we propelled uh, humanity into a new era rather than feeling shame-faced about the potential environmental consequences of some forms of industry in the 21st century. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, you know, this country forged the way in the, the late 18th, early 19th century. And, you know, we, we handed over the baton to others in the 20th century. Okay. But, uh, you know, the, this country, Manchester was the, the wonder yeah. of the world in the early yeah. 19th century. People came to see, you know, what appeared to be a new form of society here. Yeah. And, um, you know, if we'd had the same attitudes in the early 19th century that we have now uh, to risk, to experimentation, to development, you know, we, we would just not have, this wouldn't have happened. It would have happened somewhere else, if at all. And we should be proud of that. The Industrial Revolution has made people healthier, wealthier. We all work less. We all have more time to do things that we actually like doing rather than working. And that is what life should be about, I think. And I, I just find it so distressing really in a way that that um this is this is all being questioned i i i think it is a pity that britain has gone along with the kind of the global consensus on mm. on climate and these issues rather than using brexit to stand out a bit against it i think there was a feeling that Climate was a way of showing that we weren't really bad people. Yeah. Despite having voters leave the EU, we still did believe in globalism and other right-thinking things. And in a way, I think that's encouraged us to kind of double down on yeah. this rather than um, speak against it. But once again, the crucial thing is is freedom of debate. You, you've got to be able to question this stuff. And it, it isn't that easy at the moment, uh, but it is possible. And it is really important that people to have doubts, see things in a different way, speak out and get the debate going and get it in the right direction. Yeah, I, that's a really important point about the possibility that one of the reasons our establishment has embraced the climate change idea is as a kind of counter to the idea that Britain has become this evil, Brexity, anti-global yeah, nation. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's, a, that's a, a very useful insight. Okay, so my final question for you is something that you've just mentioned there yourself, which is the issue of freedom of speech and just how 
almost unbelievably important freedom of speech is. So virtually everything we've talked about comes back to the question of freedom of speech. If you don't have the freedom to talk honestly about what Brexit represents and what Brexit Britain needs, then that's going to undercut what we do. And then in relation to the issue of transgenderism, of wokeness, where there is a severe pressure on people, as you described, to bow down to the current orthodoxy and to suppress their own views and their own feelings. And then right through to COVID, the demonization of the Great Barrington Declaration guys and others who raise questions of lockdown, and the very real possibility that that kind of censure propelled us into a course of action that was not necessarily the right course of action. Mm. And then obviously climate change in which any form of skepticism or dissent is instantly written off as denialism, uh, which is a word that comes pretty much from the Inquisition era. In the old days, you denied the truth of God, and today you deny the truth of climate change. All of these issues, I think, really confirm how essential it is to the functioning of human society and the progress of human society, that we have that ability to speak openly and frankly about the issues that face us. So how much of a problem do you think something like cancel culture or or censorship more broadly has become? And isn't it essential that we really err on the side of freedom on all of these ideological questions? I, I mean, it really is. I think it's the the kind of fundamental underpinning thing for so many of these other questions, to be honest. It would be much better if we had a First Amendment in this country, obviously, but but that's not possible, I think, for various reasons. When I was young, if you if people disagreed, you often heard people say, well, it's a free country and <laughs> expect, you know, that was just the way it was. You hardly ever hear people saying that now. And I think something has shifted in our culture, our attitude to free speech. Um, and we need to, to get back to that. And, uh, you know, it only comes through people being willing to speak out. That social progress comes, has historically come from people who've demanded things, pressed for things, wanted things change, and been willing to say so, and if necessary, take the consequences. And people have got to do that now, I think, for, for things they believe in or want to see happen. I'm really worried about the online harms bill here mm-hmm. specifically. I think it will have a very chilling effect on on free speech and this whole concept of legal but but harmful yeah. seems like a very bad road to go down. I mean, I, I on Twitter or wherever I you know I get um, in my timeline you know a stream of abuse all the time uh, from people. Quite a lot of sportive stuff as well, but a lot of quite nasty stuff. A lot of ministers get a lot worse than I ever did. But I would never dream of saying the government needs to protect me from this sort of thing. There's a mute button, there's a block button. You don't have to look. That is living in a free society. And I just think people have got to get a bit tougher. I think... Mm-hmm. I think actually most people in this country can stand free debate. They're perfectly okay with the idea. They recognize people can disagree. They can disagree strongly and they don't need protecting from it. And I I just feel, you know, if we trusted people more to have these sort of discussions and live with it, we'd be in a much, much healthier place than we are. And we still can, so we should. Lord Frost, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion.
don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.